my name is Patty Delaney and I am an associate professor in the dance division and it is my pleasure today to interview a dear friend of mine Rhonda Blair who is a professor in theater and a former chair in theater um, who is very important not only in the acting portion of the program but also in the theoretical side of the program so it's a multifaceted approach that Dr. Blair takes to education mm -hmm. so Rhonda just so thrilled to be here uh, with such a good friend and yes. a chance to look back at your career and your training and your life here at SMU mm -hmm. so just to kick things off mm -hmm. if you were going to talk about your youth as a as an Air Force brat, mm -hmm. <laughs> what are three words you'd use to describe that childhood? Oh, oh gosh. Well, peripatetic <laughs> was the first word that came to mind when I was thinking about this. And then, interestingly, maybe for some folks, rural blue collar and then church centered, mm. which, and those were all roots for the path that I've ended up taking, kind of stumbling my way through. So. Well, and that, that, um, traveling, of course, those influences mm -hmm. remained strong in your in your decision making processes mm -hmm. over time. But how did that childhood get you to the University of Nevada? Oh gosh, well, part of it was traveling all over the place. Basically, I went to four elementary schools, two junior high schools, but seventh and ninth grade at one, and eighth grade at the other, and then three different high schools, starting in Northwest. Where did I start? Yes, Northwest Florida, then Central Manitoba, where we were living while my dad was in Da Nang in the late 60s doing weapons maintenance on planes, and then my last year at Rancho Senior High School in North Las Vegas. And my dad, I think I'm answering your question, mm -hmm. and my dad retired from the service in 1969 after 20 years. And they weren't sure if they were going to settle in Nashville or in Detroit because we had family in both of those places. So I thought, well, I have a $600 scholarship to UNLV or to, that I can use anywhere. So I'll just stay at UNLV for a year and then transfer either in my dreams to Vanderbilt or the University of Michigan. And by the time I got done with my first year, I was settled. I just wanted to stay. So that's how I ended up at UNLV. And you got a, a, a BA there in, in acting and directing? Well, a BA in theater, theater. just a basic theater bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. and, and so then you decided to go on and get a master's at the University of Kansas. Well, what I, I, well, I wanted to be an actress. I wanted to be in movies, and I wanted to do Ibsen and Chekhov and Shaw. And so I went... The week after I graduated to the day, I flew to New York City, not knowing anybody, but having the name of my mentor's friend who was working at Lincoln Center in, um, uh, I think, booking. And he found me a part, uh, he found me a full-time job for a printer typographer and a roommate. And so as I was getting to the end of a year in New York City, and I'd been making the rounds and doing off-off-Broadway and studying at the HB studio, I realized I needed more training, and I didn't want to audition for commercials and soap operas, which is where most of the jobs were. I wanted to do Ibsen and Chekhov and Shaw. So I realized I needed more training, and this was in the early mid-'70s. I wanted to head to the regional theater circuit, which at that time were doing major seasons of classical mm -hmm and significant new plays. And I 
again, I got the recommendation from my mentor, we'll try Kansas. And so I got into Kansas thinking, well, I'll spend a year and a half there, get the degree, and try to land a job at one of the regional theaters. And they gave me a little teaching assignment in my second semester, an improv class for random students at KU. And I realized I liked teaching. And I also realized, because they started giving me, so I got that income, and then I got fellowships and assistantships and grants, and I thought, I want the regular income. And that came from this knock-around working-class background that I had as the daughter of an enlisted man. And I thought, well, uh, and I was also getting to do Ibsen and Chekhov and Shaw. And so I thought, well, this is a pretty good gig where I have the stability, the potential for stability of an academic path while continuing to do work in the theater as an actor or director that is meaningful to me. And so, and I've just benefited throughout my life through serendipities and timing. Um, I was able in 1980, uh, when I still had not finished my dissertation, to get two tenure-track job offers at significant institutions, the University of Kentucky and the University of Cincinnati, and I took, I took the UK one uh, and ended up there. Uh, and also along the way of those doctoral studies, there was a connection with the Russian language program uh, at Kansas. So I was able to uh, get that degree, study the language, and spend significant amounts of time in, in the, then the Soviet Union and continue that. So uh, that's kind of a long answer, but that's sort of how I ended up on the academic track as opposed to the professional actor track which I had envisioned being on. Right. And so uh, once you got your PhD, what was your what was your next uh, teaching job after the because you got your at Kansas, right? Well, and, uh, yeah, so I was I was all but dissertation when okay, I got right. when I got okay. the Kentucky the University of Kentucky job and I finished that I think about a year after I had landed at at uh, at UK. Um, and then um, I was approached by uh, a colleague, a playwright colleague, about an opening at Hampshire College on the faculty. And I was feeling a little, uh, Kentucky was a great place to start. Um, I wanted something a little more adventurous. And I was approached about this job at Hampshire College, which is in Amherst, Massachusetts, which would get me to the Northeast, which would get me close to New York. And it was also, uh, and it remains, uh, an innovative school. It was uh, about um, you know, allowing students to craft their own degree programs within limited requirements. And that allowed me to engage in interdisciplinarity with my fellow co uh, colleagues from across the campus. It was small. There were maybe 100 faculty and 1,100 students and to travel to Boston and New York to see theater. And so that was a wonderful place to be. But because it was a new school founded in 1970 as part of a consortium, there wasn't any endowment to speak of. There was limited money for salaries. And so after about a decade, well, I'm a, well I want to be sure I get the Hampshire thing right. It gave me this rich interdisciplinary experience and exposure to theater that I hadn't had before that, generally. 
but I thought, I want to secure my retirement. I'm a single woman, and I'm looking at being a poor old lady, and that doesn't <laughs> sound like fun, right? And uh, I, I was also living in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a wonderful town, but the pickings are kind of slim if you're a straight woman. <laughs> you know, I loved it. I loved it. It was great. And, and I also wanted to work with students who were more focused on theater because Hampshire, uh, Hampshire students generally wanted to explore a lot of different things and wanted to be free to craft their own path. And so I started applying for, uh, for positions that would get me you know, closer to places where, where I might have more access to financial security, to uh, richer potentials for sort of a social life, and then students who are really focused on theater. And hence SMU in 1995, thank goodness. You know, so that was just a wonderful thing. Well, yeah. and you came here, were hired as the chair. Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. that was that's a huge uh, acknowledgement of mm-hmm. your achievements at that point to be hired as chair. Yeah. Yeah. and. Um, well, you know, how uh, you've done so many productions, um, and a lot of them have focused on feminism and politics. Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, one of my frustrations growing up, particularly as I hit my teens, was that I was living in a very conservative family where there were strict definitions of gender roles. And so I was expected to stay home, help with childcare for my wonderful baby brother, who was quite a bit younger than I, while my other brother, wonderful late brother, who was a year and a half younger than I, was off playing sports and doing things and giving, you know, given a lot more sort of freedom and autonomy uh, than I felt I was getting. And so I was bumping up against these, these strict gender um, um, categories. And so that wasn't so much a factor then as I hit college uh, and certainly feminism wasn't in my head in 1969 when I started college. All I know is it felt good to be freed from that when I was out on my own. And then as I progressed, particularly into graduate education, it was like, oh, there are ways of thinking about and talking about this. Um, I do remember the impact, though, of things like in 19... 72, even though, mm, don't want to get into, no, I don't want to get, but, but things like the, the, um, the changes in laws related to contraception and reproductive rights. Although I was a pretty conservative kid in many ways, that kind of hit my radar. I thought, oh, something's shifting here. And then that became significant to me as I, as I got older. Um, but feminism really came into play for me in the later 70s and early 80s. Uh, so in 81, I started at Kentucky. One of the first plays I directed was Top Girls by Carol Churchill, which was about precisely about the choices that women were often expected to make between having a career and having family. And Churchill embodies that in the roles of two sisters who 
are who choose or are pushed into different paths. And I kind of progressed from there. I played Isabella in uh, Measure for Measure and Desdemona in Othello in the summer of 1983 for what is now the Kentucky Shakespeare Festival. And my director, my wonderful director, Becky Jo Schneider, and I decided we're going to approach these plays and these roles in a way that subverts the sexism and the gender categories of these two characters. So we did it. We realized it wasn't possible. And so one of my very first articles that I ever had published was called Shakespeare and the Feminist Actor. And it was about the challenges and the impossibilities of that task at that time historically, and in which I ended up saying, until we can figure out how to do these roles in a way, and these plays in a way that doesn't demean women or marginalize women, we shouldn't be doing them at all. And of course, that's where the discourse was in the early 1980s, these kind of really um, more extreme um, takes on it you know, a stronger pushing back than we might see today, because I certainly wouldn't hold that position now. I think we've got to do these plays. But it's still figuring out how to do it mm -hmm. in a way that is aware of that. So, so hence, so the feminism was the start of this political impulse and this political thread that's really woven its way throughout my career. And, I mean, I think one of the first things I saw you do was a solo, was was a piece you created mm -hmm. with a, a woman's group here mm -hmm. that, um, at the bathhouse, and, and it was both political and feminist, you know, really yeah. tied together in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that for a second? Gosh, do you remember which, was, was it American it, Jesus? Uh, well, it was so you did with Echo. You did a couple of things with Echo. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was the first one. The first one that I did, uh, and I had actually, yeah, I created this for you. Yeah, American Jesus was a, about growing up fundamentalist and female. Mm. And it that one began with me in my Texas jeans and my cowboy boots in a Lone Star-themed shirt. And... Uh, doing a line dance to uh, some headbanger Christian rock. So <laughs> if the, I don't know. So, so, so that was about sort of turning, you know, experience into material. And then I went on with um, Echo to do pieces such as um, uh, Dreaming America in the Bunker with George, and that was as a response to the invasion of Iraq. And then American Cassandra Deja Vu, which was... Um, sort of looking back at certain historical repetitions and trying to holler about it and needing to respond to it. So Yeah, that things are still quite the same. Yeah. Oh, yes. That history yeah. has repeated itself many yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I want to talk about the, the um, theoretical studies that you've done. But before we do that, because this makes me think about your solo performance class where people are troving mm -hmm. their own experience mm -hmm. to be able to uh, find a, a way to turn that into theater. Could you talk about that for just a second? Well, I actually started doing that work at the University of Kentucky. And I'm not sure why I started that or where it came from, but having students create, it was devised pieces. It wasn't necessarily solo work, but it was collaborative creation. And, um, and then at Hampshire College, I did more of that. And the solo class, as I do it now, really started at SMU. And for me, it's, and it began working with undergraduate students, upper level 
uh, juniors and seniors viewing the work of a lot of solo performers, doing readings about solo performers, and then generating their own usually 8 to 12 minute piece, sometimes 15 minute piece. But it's a way, I, I view it as a way for students to figure out what they need to say and how they need to say it. Um, for theater students, and I often have non-majors do it, but for theater students about taking all the tools they've learned in the first two or three years and applying it to creating something that is just theirs. Um, and uh, that is empowering personally, I think, but also there's a practical function for me, which is that actors are so dependent on being hired by somebody else. And knowing how to make your own work keeps you active and can give you some employment while you're waiting to get cast in the next role. Um, and also, it can be a way to showcase yourself so that when an agent or a director or casting director comes, you've got something to show them that's there. So, so it's got this really practical, capitalist-focused <laughs> impulse, right? About, you know, getting a job and making money. Uh, and also uh, a personal, um, expressive function. Uh, and so I had a couple of graduate students, MFA acting students, um, audit the class because they were their credit hours were all booked up. And shortly after, a couple of these students did their work. The acting faculty, and actually, I'm not on the acting faculty. I'm theater studies. I am. I want, I want to. I want to be clear about that. Um, uh, the acting faculty came to me and said, would you teach a course in solo performance to our third-year MFA actors? And I'm sure. So now, um, every other autumn, I've been teaching an undergrad class, which I teach every fall, but then I teach a grad-level class for the third-year actors who are getting ready to graduate the following spring. Mm -hmm. And they do pieces that are anywhere from like 30 to 40 minutes long. What would be almost an evening then? Yeah. Or a part of an evening, yeah, for sure. Yeah, part of an evening mm -hmm. then, yeah, for sure. And um, it's been great to see the students, grad and undergrad, go on and continue to develop their own work, someone who's doing solo work, or to use the course as a springboard for going on to whatever their next theater life is. So, for example, um, in about the year 2000, Nathan Allen was an undergrad senior and he took the course along with some others. And then Nathan founded the House Theater in 2001 in Chicago. And they make a lot of their own work. So it's not just the solo work, but it's the devised work. And, and the House Theater has won a good number of awards, for example. And a lot of it, I think, um, came from their general education at mm -hmm. SMU Theater. But the, um, the solo class gave them another set of tools to enhance that. Well, and I think, you know, what's so important about that, it's honoring the individual's mm -hmm. experience and emotional, mm -hmm. creative, all, mm -hmm. those th all those things, and focusing it, because that's, for young artists, a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. They know they're what they're experiencing, but they don't always quite know how to say it. Right. Um, so let's uh, look for a minute now at these, this wonderful research that you've done and this uh, writing presenting component. Um, I just want to start by saying that you were 
recently honored a, as a distinguished scholar by the American Society for Theater Research, mm-hmm. which is a huge honor. I mean, this is a yeah. A major, it was the 2019 award. Yeah, yeah. the the one they give every year. Yeah. And I, and you know certainly think that that recognizes not you know your work over time. And I think what people might find particularly interesting is the work that you've done in cognitive science mm-hmm. and acting, mm-hmm. um, because that's that's a, a process that we don't, you know, always look at the creative side has this thinking element. So would you talk about that a bit? Sure. Actually, you know, I, um, there are people who have used the science of their time to try to think about to talk about acting and audience reception and language going back to Plato who talked about the power of imitation to infect and change the audience and therefore only the certain people uh, basically men of privilege should be allowed to imitate right Aristotle on the other hand who followed said no 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 imitation is basic to what it means to be human and to how we learn. And so you can go through these scientific paradigms of the different eras and come up to today, and now we're in this age of looking at the findings of cognitive and neuroscience and um, terms such as situated cognition and cognitive ecologies as ways of, and also, you know, in, in between, sort of Stanislavski, for example, using the, the psychology of his day to try to understand what was going on with the acting process. Um, so... Um, there are a group of us who are using the current research in cognition and neuroscience to try to understand what it is that happens um, when we act, when we are an audience member, when we read a text, uh, when we hear language, uh, looking at the relationship and, you know, I'm thinking about you being a dancer, right? that the body is a site of cognition, of knowing, that it's not just centered in sort of this abstract mind or even sort of the material brain, but that um, um, cognition is, uh, there's like a term for e-cognition. It's, cognition is, is embodied, it is in our body brain. It is embedded, which means we use, um, um, gosh, I'm, Blanking. We used our environment, things in our environment, to help us know and understand and learn. So I can pick up a phone. I can use a chair to stand on to reach something, right? It is um, extended into the people around us. So as I'm speaking and looking at you, part of what I am doing is taking in my, is taking in what I'm getting from you and what you're, how you're responding is being affected by what I'm doing. Um, and then cognition, and I love this one, the fourth E is enacted. In order to perceive, we have to act. So for me to see something, I have to focus my eyes or I have to turn my head. Uh, and that's really fundamental for thinking about acting and theater and performance because it's always about bodies and relationships. So I'm finding it really useful in that way. Um, so, so we're moving forward with that. Yeah. Well, and you've been a keynote speaker at all, at international conferences mm-hmm. uh, that partially about this and other it's things. It's all as about well. this. Yeah. yeah, that's always why I'm invited to talk about some aspect of cognition and performance. Yeah. Well, it's important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really mm-hmm. important for us to because there's so many ways of perceiving. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, and that's we're constantly doing it on all mm-hmm. those levels. And I think for actors and performers mm-hmm. of any kind, there has to be a real awareness of that. Yeah, it's um, uh, we tend to want to. Well, we're kind of taught to compartmentalize ourselves, like mind is over here, feeling is over there, your body is over here, that person is separate from you, uh, I'm not connected. And there was, a, there was a note that I made on one of these questions, these wonderful questions that we got. Um, oh, yeah, uh, well, if someone was going to make a theater production of my career up to this point, what would the title be? And one of the options I came up with was, it's all connected. Mm. Um, and so the the cognitive science gives me ways of thinking about the work I'm doing, but also of working with students to say, look, don't separate this stuff. Don't se- it's all part of an ecology. It's all part of a single organism, right? Yes. It's all coming from one organism. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you are looking at, well, let me go back and say, do you have a, a favorite production you've done here at SMU? I try, you know, I really don't. There are many that I've loved. Because you've done so many wonderful things. Thanks. Talk about the last thing you did. Oh, my the God. <laughs> the cherry orchard. But it was wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah. And that's an important play. It's a really important, and Chekhov is my guy. Yeah. Chekhov is my guy. I mean, I'm half Ukrainian, hence my desire to, to do the Russian, which which was as close as I could get. And Chekhov is my touchstone as a playwright. Well, Chekhov and Carol Churchill. And um, I worked with a mixed cast of graduate and undergraduate actors. And I, it was, um, um, and it was my translation of the play. Uh, and it was uh, a rich and wonderful experience and also fraught one because we had one student who was going through some challenges at the time, but we got through it and it was mm-hmm. all good. And that makes me think of... Peter Brooks' production of The Cherry Orchard that I saw at BAM years ago in the early, maybe late 90s, early early 80s, late 80s, early late 80s. And Peter Brook is possibly, well, certainly one of the most responsible people for me setting out on the path that I set out on at a point when I was an undergraduate trying to decide between majoring in English or political science or theater. And so one of the great things they did at UNLV, and I think my mentor was responsible for this, um, Jerry Crawford, they organized a van. I don't think I had to pay for this. I don't think we had to pay for this, but they supported and made happen a trip driving from Vegas across the desert over the mountains to L.A. to the Mark Taper Forum to see in, this would have been 1971 or two, seeing Peter Brooks' production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Brook is inarguably one of the most important directors of the last 60 years. His production of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream exploded every convention of how to do Shakespeare that had been set in place. And I remember sitting in nosebleed territory with my friends, coming to the end of Act One, when Bottom and Titania get together, and there is huge alarms, there is confetti falling from the ceiling, 
bottom is raised on the shoulders of, I don't know who it might have been, the fairies. But I remember sitting there with tears running down my face, thinking, I've made the right choice with my life. Mm. And never looked back. And then at about the same time, I was cast as Antigone, an Ennui's Antigone. And that, of course, hit my political, powerful, young woman, you know, vibe. And so... That's set, all she wrote. Set a lot of that's, that's all she wrote. Yeah, that's all she wrote. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, let's see. Um, you know, we're we're both about to embark on retirement, mm-hmm. and um, just wondering what your plans are for that, and what you're thinking about as you approach this last semester of teaching at SMU. Or yeah. well, you probably will adjunct, adjunct down the road, yeah, but full, being the last a full time, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to keep adjuncting. I, w- I mean, I'd love to do a class a year or so. Is what, this is what I'm imagining right now, or directing a play a year. Um, so I want to I stay connected. Uh, and uh, staying around young people is mm-hmm. really important, you know, staying in the classroom, continuing to. And for me, the, the classroom and the productions, rehearsals, those have been my labs. Those mm. are my labs for my research in cognitive science and applications of it. Uh, um, a lot of my recent writing has been about case studies. And, um, and then, um, so I want to keep writing, reading and writing and researching. And uh, I'm looking forward to slowing down a bit, actually, <laughs> but not stopping. Not yeah, stopping. well, knowing you, you will slow down yeah. only marginally. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in looking at your time here at SMU, and, you know, SMU is about to approach its 50th anniversary, or we're in that, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the major changes you've seen that that stand out to you at this moment as you're looking back on this Well, career? in terms of theater, the theater division, one thing I have loved and been really struck by is the commitment that the division has made to diversity and recruiting. And the theater division has set, I think, a standard for much of the rest of the college in terms of diversity of recruiting, uh, in terms of ethnicity, and in terms of class. Uh, We have been, one of the things that I'm proud of that I started when I came here as chair was to shift the recruiting from being um, two or three young men for every young woman recruited because I was told that's where the roles were. Well, indeed, that's where the roles were, but that wasn't, for me, a reason not to be more equitable in recruiting to a 50-50 goal for young men and young women. And we have since... uh, you know, move towards a real commitment to div- to ethnic diversity and class diversity in recruiting. So that's been great. Um, and I just have benefited so much and been so struck by the caliber of the education and the caliber of the students uh, in Meadows and particularly in the performing arts, in music, theater, and dance. And I love the collaborations that our students mm-hmm. do with each other. Yes, and they seek those out. Mm -hmm. Well, in winding up, is there anything you would... Well, I want to talk a bit about the legacy. Was there's a question about uh, history and theater and Uh SMU and all of that. And and I just really want to note that there is a legacy to protect here in the division that goes back to the early 1970s. 
and we had faculty like Burnett Hobgood, a leading scholar, and Jack Clay, a leading acting teacher of the time. And students then in the early 70s included Kathy Bates, the great actress, Oscar-winning actress, and Beth Henley, the award-winning playwright. Um, James Houghton, who founded the Signature Theater in New York City. And, um, and we've consistently graduated students, undergraduate and graduate, who've gone on to significant uh, careers. And I hope that our students and faculty continue to make a positive change in theater and film and in the world more broadly. And so that's... And I'm sure they will. That's what I wish, yeah. Well, Rhonda, it's been lovely to hang out with you. I'm so glad you did this. <laughs> this well, fun. I think it's important for you to know that, you know, as a fellow faculty member in Meadows, aside from being friends, that there is a, a great respect for you and your accomplishments mm -hmm. in Meadows. And we honor that. Thank you so much. You are welcome. This is a pleasure. <laughs>